welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Your Bibles with you. We will be in Luke chapter one this morning. Luke chapter one. Well, this year was a special year for one of my very close friends. Some of you have met Myron, who has been here a few times. Myron, at the age of 44, in his first actual relationship, got married. It was one of the coolest things ever. He had met a lady girl when you're in your 30s. What do you call them? Ladies, women, girls? He had met LaRonda, who lived in Ohio, and he had fell in love with her. And I remember the night he came to my house, and they were sitting on my couch, and we were talking. He said, Brian, I've got something to tell you. He said, I have just asked this beautiful lady to be my wife. And, and I paused because I wanted wanted to make sure she said yes before I started celebrating. And of course she had said yes to him. And so we were talking about this. There was all of this excitement. He's like, Brian, I'm so excited. I'm like, me too, brother. I'm so excited that you get to spend the rest of your life with the woman that you love with all of your heart. I said, when are you getting married? He said, we've decided we're going to get married in May. And I'm like, May? That's, that's way too far away. Gosh, it's going to be torture waiting that long to, to marry the woman that you love. He said, I know, but that's what we decided to do. I was like, okay, well, if that's what you decided to do. He said, here's what I need, brother. He said, I I need you there. I want you to be one of my groomsmen. And I'm like, it is an absolute honor to be one of your groomsmen at your wedding. You just tell me where the wedding is going to be at and I will be there and I will stand beside you while you commit your life to the woman you love. He said, the wedding's going to be in Ohio. I said, we need to pray about this for a little bit, okay? We got women in Arkansas. And if you was to marry one of them, I would not have to drive to Ohio for your dumb wedding. And he didn't listen to me, so we had to do this. Now, Jessica and I wanted to be there for him, so, so we had to schedule some things. We, we had some problems, though. Uh, he, he was getting married in Ohio. It's about a 12-hour drive to where they were getting married at, and it was on a Friday night. Now, Jessica and I, we both worked, so we were trying to figure out, how, how's this going to work? I don't know if you guys know this. Teachers can't just take off for three days for a wedding. I didn't even take off three days for my own wedding. So we had to figure out, like, how are we going to get off work and get up there on a Friday? We have a two-year-old. I don't know about you guys, but spending 24 hours over three days in a car with a screaming two-year-old. Not exactly how I like to spend my Memorial Day weekend. So we didn't, we didn't do that. And we had to figure out what to do with her. And then last, I had to be back with you guys on Sunday. So how are we going to get to Ohio and back in that short amount of time to celebrate his wedding with him? Now, we ended up working it out. And the way we worked it out is we got off work on Thursday. We drove deep into the night. We slept for about six hours, got up. We drove the rest of the day and we got there about three hours before the wedding started. Now, I told you all of that to tell you this. In those three hours, we had to get dressed, take pictures, prepare for the wedding. I had to make sure that he didn't run away. My job was to tackle him if he tried to go anywhere. I, I, we had to make sure all of that worked. And about halfway through that three hours, he, he said, Brian, if you want to say something at the reception, I, I would love for you to do that. And I said, well, I'm kind of the second groomsman here. I'm going to leave that for, for, the, for the best man, the one that you've known since you were like 12. I'm going to let him say something. I wasn't going to say anything. And he kept kind of hinting at it, and I got the idea. He wants me to say something. Now, you guys may not know this about me. I'm, I'm not a public speaker. I know some of you are going, yeah, I know, Brian. We come in here every Sunday. And some of you are going, well, you're a preacher. You have to be a public speaker. Everything I say from this stage has been pre-planned over about 10 hours of the week before and practiced on Sunday morning before you hear it. And so now I've got this little short amount of time to give a wedding toast to my best friend. And so I'm sitting there during the reception. Everybody's, everybody's celebrating and they're telling him congratulations. And I'm over there with my phone just typing out, I like Myron. That's all I can come up with. 
But when I got up there and I began to talk and I began to talk about Myron, it just kind of flowed out how much I loved him and how great he was. It was maybe the easiest thing I'd ever done. And the reason I'm telling you that is, is I was able to do that for him, not because he was somebody I had known for a long time, but I'd only known him for a couple years, but because I knew him in a deep, personal way. My friend Myron and I had sat around for hours just talking about the character of God. Now, the reason I tell you that story is as we look at Mary today, Mary is, is in this spontaneous moment of worship, and she's going to begin to talk about the character of God. And what that tells me is, is Mary was not just talking about a figure that she had read about in a book. Mary was talking about a being who she deeply and intimately knew. And in this spontaneous moment of worship, she could just talk about who God was. And my hope and my prayer for us today as followers of Christ is that we too can, can worship and grasp God the way that Mary did in this song and focus on his character. So if you read with me, we're going to read her whole song today. And then we're going to come back and focus on the parts that we didn't talk about last week. So verse 46 in Luke 1. And Mary said, my soul does magnify the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior for he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden for behold uh, for behold from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed for he that is mighty has done to me great things and holy is his name. That's where we stopped last week. Keep reading with me. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. So, so Mary here in this spontaneous moment of worship, what we looked at last week, is she begins to talk about her personal connection with God. She talks about how her spirit and her soul magnifies God. There's this focus within her and who she is on who God is. And in that focus, she finds a lot of joy because she looks at God not as some being, but as her personal Savior. And last week we concluded in verse 49, she came to this conclusion, nothing better to say. She just said, holy is his name. Uh, that word holy just, just simply means set apart. Mary, Mary simply concludes this after focusing on him. She says, there is nothing in a category with our God. And you just see this realization in her at how God is so amazing. And with verse 49, she begins to shift the focus of her worship. Uh, up to this point, her focus was on her personal relationship. But now in 49, she begins to focus on the character of God. And once again, I just want to say, you, you only know the character of somebody if you know them deeply and personally. And so for Mary to be able to sit here and talk about God with this depth of knowledge is not something that was trained into her as this is how you talk about God. God knew, or Mary knew the character of God. And Mary could worship in the character of God, or worship the character of God for that particular reason. See, there's a difference in how we know people. Like many of you, I have known for some of you all of my life. Many more of you I've just met over the past few years. There are a few of you who I would say, I love you, but we're just acquaintances. There's a difference in how you know somebody that you go to church with, or know somebody that you go to school with, or know somebody that you work with, and the difference in how you know somebody you have a deep personal relationship with. My wife and I have been married for just a little under six years now. 
And um, I've learned her pretty good. I know things about my wife at any given time that nobody else would ever know. I can tell at a glance if she's happy. I can tell when she's talking to somebody by her body language if she's insecure by something. And let me tell you, I can, I can tell when she's not happy too. <laughs> I've learned that one. Like, like I know her, but it, it's not because we're married. I mean, it is in a way. It's not because I just call her my wife. I know these things about her because we spend a lot of time getting to know each other. And my hope for us is that as followers of Christ, this isn't just a habit to show up at church, that we come here to spend time with God and that we learn him and we spend personal time with him and we begin to know not just what the Bible says about him, but know his heart and know his character because of what the Bible says about him. And that's what we, what we see in Mary here. And from this deep knowledge comes a deep place of worship. Your first take-home truth today, if you're taking notes, is that true worship begins with knowing the character of God. So in verse 51, 50 and 51, she begins a character analysis of God. Who is God as Mary knows him? And the first thing she talks about is how God has mercy on people, how he is a merciful being. And when we talk about mercy, most of us probably know that definition, especially as it goes with church. Usually when we talk about mercy, it just simply means that that somebody has a right to punish us, but doesn't. And what I was thinking about this week with mercy is we often define mercy as an action. Have mercy on me. Be merciful to me. God is so merciful. We define it as an action. He could do, but he chooses not to. But if you really look at mercy in a biblical sense, mercy is not an action of God. Mercy is who he is. See, when you see the word mercy in Scripture, you shouldn't be thinking about about God pardoning me from punishment. You should be thinking about the emotion and the heart behind God being willing to pardon us. If you look up this word in Greek, it's translated multiple places in your Bible as mercy, charity, pity, or compassion. And I saw that word compassion as I was looking this up today. I was like, compassion, that makes so much more sense when you're talking about the heart of God instead of just the actions of God. Compassion simply means that you look at somebody and your heart breaks for what they're going through. And so we have this picture of God's heart and what Mary's saying here is when God looks at us, he looks at us with compassion. Before he does a single thing for us, his heart says this. He looks at us in all of the filth of our sin and instead of condemning us, he says, oh, they've fallen into the trap. Sin has them and if they keep keep going down that road, it'll destroy them. It'll destroy their life physically. It'll destroy their life spiritually. And eventually it will destroy their life eternity. And God is moved with mercy and moved with compassion. And out of that heart, that moves him to action. And specifically the action here on Christmas that we're talking about is it moved him to action to send his only son here for you and me. That this baby that we worship and we sing about on Christmas, born in a manger next to the donkeys and the camels that was there, This baby that we sing about in a manger would grow up. He would live the perfect life. And he would sacrifice himself on a cross for us. See, God's heart moves him to action that Jesus would die to us. Your second take-home truth is God is mercy and compassion. God is mercy and compassion. 
And as Mary focuses on God, and she begins to focus on the character of God, it moves her to worship, and it should move us to worship as well. God who is set apart, who is perfect, who is holy, who is greater than anything I could ever describe, He looks down on us who are nothing. And He loves us, and He has mercy on us, and He has compassion on us. Even though we've spent our lives in a war with Him in sin, even though we assault Him with our actions, we attack Him with our words, we deny Him with our very lips, His very, very being looks on us with compassion. There's nobody in this room who can live that way in your day-to-day life. I know you guys. Somebody attacks you, you're going to attack them back. And I know that about you because I know that about me. Like our God is so great that we can spend our lives attacking him, insulting him and disgracing him. And he still looks at us and says, "Ah, they just fall into a trap. I've got to find a way to save them from that punishment. So his very being is compassion. What more could we worship? And here's what I love about God is Mary is singing this, and it may seem like you're singing about one moment in time where God has mercy, but here's what she says. Um, God has mercy on those who fear him from generation to generation. I I love that. that. That basically means forever throughout all of human history. That means God's mercy was available and the same to our great grandparents and our grandparents and our parents and to us as it will be to our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids and our great-great-grandkids. God's mercy will reign forever. This never-ending, never-ending a mercy that is available to everybody because that's who he is. It's not something he chooses to do. He is a merciful God. Now, while mercy is available to everybody, I think we should also say that not everybody receives it. Listen carefully to what I said. I want to make sure we don't get sidetracked. God's mercy is available to everybody. His heart goes out to everybody, but not everybody will receive the benefits of his mercy. If you look at what Mary says here, she says, God's mercy, uh, God's mercy is um, upon everyone from generation to generation that fears him, those that fear him. Now, when I think of fear, I think of being scared. And there's nothing more that scares me in the world than a snake. If there was a snake in this room, I'm leaving. I don't care. And I'm not the only one. Denise is scared of snakes too, aren't you? Yeah, that's why I brought you this picture of a snake. No, I'm kidding. Denise would have ran out of here screaming if I had done that. Like like there's a fear of something where I'm not going to be around it. I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm not going to look at it. I can't even look at a picture of a snake without like starting to shiver. And so when we think of fear, it's like, does the Bible teach us to fear God that way? That we should think of God and be terrified of him? There was a religion of people called the Quakers, a Christian denomination. And they were called Quakers because they would quake in fear at an angry God. So many people misunderstand what it means to fear God because that is not in line with what the Bible teaches us about God. While the Bible teaches us that God is a holy and perfect and righteous judge, God, the Bible also teaches us that God is merciful, that he is personal, that he invites us to know him, that he pursues us. And the Bible even says that we can approach God boldly as children of God, not out of disrespect, but out of a deep knowledge of his heart of mercy. You can't be terrified of someone who invites you to know him personally. That word fear there simply means respect or reverence. We're supposed to revere who God is and revere his heart. 
An example of, of revering and respecting the power of a being. My wife watches a show. Anybody in here ever watched the show Survivor? Anybody? Nobody. Okay, let me explain it to you since you've never watched it. Survivor is this show that comes on TV, and they take a bunch of people from all walks of life, and they dump them on an island somewhere, and they have to compete. And the last person left on the island, they vote people off every week. The last person left on the island gets, I think it's a million dollars, if they can win the game of Survivor. And there was this one season, my wife, there's 40 seasons of this. Let me just complain. 40 seasons of this, we watched them all. And I don't like Survivor. She's going to listen to this later and be like, you're talking about me again. Sorry. So there was this one episode we were watching, and they were in Africa. So there's all this time when they're not competing with each other, where they just have this camp, and the ideal is they're supposed to live like they were shipwrecked or plane wrecked or something. So they, they have this very primitive camp, and all of, a sudden, all of a sudden somebody goes, look what's behind us. And behind the camp on the other side of, I guess it was a small river, there was a wild elephant walking around behind their camp. And so everybody went and sat on the hillside on the banks of the river, and they began to watch the elephant. But these people did not go try to pet the elephant. Why is that? Because they were in awe of the creature and his power, but they had a healthy respect for the boundaries of that creature. What, what I'm trying to tell you is when we fear and revere God, it's not for us to be scared of who God is and be terrified of God because it, we have a promise that his mercy is upon us. It's not for us to be terrified of him. It's for us to have a special respect and fear and awe for his power and his might and his holiness. So we fear God in this way. And the Bible says, those who fear him, his mercy is on those that fear him from generation to generation. Number three, take home truth if you're taking notes. God's power is worthy to be revered and respected. Now, if you read verse 51, you'll see that there's another group of people that it talks about. It talks about those that fear God, and then it, and it talks about uh, the proud. But let me be very clear before we go forward here. You cannot earn God's mercy. It would not be mercy if you could earn it. God's mercy is part of who he is, that every person is unable to get to God. Every person is unworthy of God, but he loves us anyway. And he has compassion on us anyway. But there's a second group, yeah, thank you, there's a second group of people here. In verse 51, here's what it says. He has showed his strength with his arm, and then the action follows. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. So we see, see two groups of people here. We, we see those that fear him and God's mercy is upon them. But as Mary tells us about the character of God, it says God has showed his strength with his, with his arm, and he scatters the proud. He shows his power. So when you ask yourself, who are the proud? Who are the proud? Uh, the, the proud means people who, who think they're better than they are, who think they're stronger than they are, who think they are more capable than they are. That very same episode of Survivor I was just talking about, most of the group sat on the hill a safe distance away from the elephant, and they watched the elephant in awe, knowing not to get too close. But two men decided they wanted to get a closer look, and they ran down to the river, and I guess they had a canoe. And they began to canoe over to where the elephant was. While the whole group of people yelled, don't get too close, that thing will kill you. They put their lives in danger by getting close to the elephant, trying to push and test the limits. But how would somebody do that? They're dumb. Oh, come on, guys, you gotta laugh at something I say today. Somebody would do that because they would have this, this sense of, I'll be able to get away. He can't kill me. I'll be faster or smarter than the elephant. 
And when the Bible talks about when the Bible talks about proud, the proud, other translations put it this way. It says that those people that are proud in their innermost thoughts. That means inwardly the proud look at themselves and say, I have no need of nobody. I can take care of myself. I'm as good as anybody out there. I'm better than that person that I work with. I don't need anything or anybody. And what the Bible tells us about God's character is that he cannot handle that. I love the way the King James Version translates that. It says, they are proud in the imagination of their hearts. I love the way the Bible puts that. The imagination, the make-believe world that they have come up with. Within their mind, they think they're better than they are. And what the Bible tells us, what, what Mary is saying is that God scatters those people. And the reason for that is pride is a bad thing. It gives us a false view of who we are. But it also gives us a sense that if I'm so good, I don't need God. So take home truth number four is we can worship that God will prove he is stronger than the proud. And so Mary's worshiping here. She's like, oh God, you've done great things for me. You have mercy on those that fear you. And we're all like, yes, that's an awesome God. And then all of a sudden she's like, and you have scattered the proud. You guys didn't know I could get that loud, did you? You struck them down. You ran them out. You don't let them be proud. And you're like, well, that's a weird worship song. Like, live next week. We want to sing about scattering the proud. Can we do that? All right. Like, like, like that doesn't seem holy. Why would you worship that God scatters the proud? Why would you worship that God comes after people who reject him? Are we celebrating the downfalls of others? Like, ha ha, you finally got it. You got what was coming to you. But no, no, no. To worship God's opposition to the proud is just as worshipful as worshiping his mercy to us. Because here's the thing. Pride, pride is a very, very evil thing. Pride, pride is something that keeps us from pursuing God. And what God will do to those who are proud is he will break those who oppose him. He will take the proud and he will show them his strength. It says he has showed the strength of his arm. He takes the pride and he shows them how weak they are compared to his strength. Why would God do that? Is it because they deserve it? No, we, we worship God because he loves us enough. And even in his mercy and compassion, he will remove obstacles. And if there's something in our heart that says, I'm too good for God, if I struggle with pride, God will break that pride so I will know of my need for him. See, God, God has this ability to look at us and go, oh, you think you're strong. Let me show you how weak you are so you will know that you need me. And he removes that separation from us. See, scattering the proud is mercy. It's just as merciful as God who loves me in all that I've done, that he would love somebody enough to say, let me get rid of the things that separate me and you. And so Mary worships the fact that God is merciful to those who fear him, but that God scatters the proud away from him. And this is something we can work, worship because God is compassion. So, so God, uh, Mary moves here from talking about the character traits of God to focusing on his actions that come from those character traits. Read with me verses 52 and 53 as we see those actions. So God sa or Mary says here, He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. So if you look at what Mary's seeing here, you, say that, you see that God clearly has, uh, God clearly blesses the needy. The humble here are exalted, which means lifted up. The hungry are filled with good things. But you see the comparison there. The rich are the opposite. The rich are sent away empty in, in Mary's song. The, the prideful are scattered in Mary's song. 
and, and the rulers are dethroned. And so the question is, does God hate rulers and rich? The answer to that is no. God does not, not hate rulers and rich. There are two things in this world that will corrupt almost any person. One of those is money. We live in a world that tells us money is a blessing. Money is a curse. And I tell you, look at any rich person and see how messed up their life is. Money is a curse. And the other thing is power. Humans will fall to money and power. So what you see here is a, is a picture of what God does as he scatters the proud. He does not hate them. In his mercy, he breaks the rich and the rulers so they will know their need for him. And this means that we get to live in a world where when God is controlled, the traits of holiness are exalted and the traits of selfishness have no reward. And it's like, well, that seems kind of mean, but isn't that what we all want? Don't we all want to live in a world where the traits of holiness are exalted? Where the people who love others are lifted up and the people who from still others are not rewarded? Have you ever sit here and thought to yourself, like, like, I do all of these things to try to live right, and that other person over there, maybe, maybe it's somebody I once knew, a friend, how do things keep going so right for them and so wrong for me? In my heart, I want it to be, if I do good things, good things happen to me. And while we can't earn God's love, what, what God is telling us here is that there is a world coming when God rules, when our traits of holiness will be exalted, and the traits of selfishness have no reward. So Mary here is worshiping that God restores order to the world and that there is an end to pride. Take home truth number five is we worship God because he restores a holy order to the world. And the Christmas story is the pinnacle of what God is doing here. God scattering the proud. God, God taking care of and giving his mercy to the humble and to those that fear him. The Christmas story is the pinnacle of of God's character in his action in doing this. Read with me one more time, verses 54 through 55. Here it says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. So Mary begins to worship here, and she's worshiping God's character and the fact that he keeps his promises. Listen, Israel is a nobody nation. It is a small group of people in the middle of a very hostile world. That is today, that is yesterday, that is when Jesus was here. Israel is a nobody nation. If you study both biblical history and world history, you'll see that the Israelites have been overrun by the Egyptians as slaves there, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians at the time that this was written, the Romans, powerful empires with great kings that make history. But look at what Mary's saying is God's promises weren't made to great empires. God's promises weren't made to rich kings. God's promises weren't made to the people who would have the biggest section in the history books. God's promises were made to little Israel, the only nation in the world dedicated to following him. And so God, through his mercy, rewards Israel and gives his biggest blessing and his biggest promise ever, a savior for all of us. See, it's interesting to me that, that Israel, if it was not for biblical history, would probably have fallen off the map by now. It'd be one of those countries, like those countries in Africa that you've never heard of, like Swaziland and Lesotho. Israel would be one of those nations, except for one thing. God chose Israel to be his people, and Israel has followed him. And out of that, God's biggest blessing, the Savior of the world, is delivered to the entire world in the humbleness of a nation that fears him. And even then, I love this about the Christmas story. 
I love the contrast between heaven and earth in the Christmas story. On earth, people barely knew that Jesus was born. He was born in a manger. Cows and donkeys and hay and manure. It's not as romantic as we talk about it in Christmas time. It's a nasty place. It smelled bad. Mary could have been in physical danger having a child here. The child could have been in danger here. Just abandoned by the entire world in a barn. But if you keep reading the Christmas story, what do you see? You keep seeing these angels up here, and they're just worshiping. All of heaven is singing. God's greatest blessing comes into the most humblest of beginnings. And the honor doesn't belong to the rich, the prideful, and the powerful. The honor belongs to those who fear God. A little nobody girl from nowhere named Mary. Take home truth number six is God's greatest blessing was brought to us through the most humble. See, this baby that was born that we're worshiping, I think it can be easy to be caught up in the story and talk about. I love this. I've been teaching my daughter to, to identify the nativity. And who is this? Who's the baby? She goes, that's baby Jesus. And it's so wonderful to think about Jesus as that little infant at Christmas time. Seems peaceful, the dark night with the bright stars. We sing about it. But Jesus was not just a baby born in a manger. He was God come to earth in the most humblest of settings. Setting an example for us of what it looks like to be Christ followers, to know, to know the humility of God in coming here. Jesus was not even just special. He fulfilled every bit of God's compassion to all humans. See, Jesus' presence is why that mercy is available to us. Jesus' presence is the action which brings us the availability of mercy. God's mercy is part of his character, but our availability to access that mercy is only because Jesus Christ was born in that dirty barn and gave his life on a cross 33 years later. That's the fulfillment of God's promise. That's the fulfillment of God's compassion. Jesus' presence scattered the proud as he walked, and the proud had to confront living God in front of them. And they had to acknowledge, I will either follow God or I will turn away from him. But you could not deny who Jesus was. He was the king of kings. And then his presence, his presence made all the earth subservient to him. The Bible calls Jesus the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Everybody on this earth is subservient to Jesus Christ, whether they know it or not. And so the fulfillment of God's compassion towards us is he sends Jesus to be here in, pre in, in human form, present with us, so we can have access to him. And so I've got one question. With all of what Mary has worshipped, with all of what Mary can teach us about the presence of God, the character of God with us, I've got a question for you. Take home truth number seven. If you don't write anything else down, write this down. I want to ask you this question. Do I fear God? Or do I live in the delusion of my own greatness? And the reason I ask you that question, Liv, if you want to start coming up here, is salvation is available to all. Every person in this room, every person you've ever met, the person who steals from Walmart, the people in jail for, for murder, like every last one of us, salvation is available to us because of what Jesus came here to do. But you will, never grasp, you will never grasp salvation. You will never own salvation until you have a knowledge that you need God. Until our prideful imaginations are scattered. And so this morning, I hope we can look into our hearts, whether we're Christians, whether we're, we're contemplating becoming Christians, I hope we can look into our hearts and we can say, what, what kind of person am I? 
Is my life ruled by the fact that I fear God, I reverence and revere Him? Or have I simply turned away from Him again and again and again and again because I refuse to admit my need for Him? If you're the second of those, today can be the day of salvation for you. Today can be the day that you come to know Him. Today can be the day that your eternity changes and all it takes is being humble enough to call out to God in faith and say, God, will you save me? I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you were born in a manger to come here to grow and die for my sins. God, will your mercy be made available to me? Today is the day. Let's stand and worship.